0: We need to expand the task of science to construct a theory that can accommodate both the data of observation experiments, of course, but also this privately
1: known reality of consciousness. My guest today is Philip Goff. Philip is an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University in the United Kingdom, with a focus on the nature of consciousness. But when we're trying to explain consciousness, it's not about explaining
0: behavior with mechanisms, it's about accounting for this invisible but undeniable privately known reality of our feelings and experiences.
1: He is a proponent of something called panpsychism, which is this really interesting theory that everything material in our universe has some element of individual consciousness which is a theory that he explores in his fascinating book called Galileo's Error, which I highly recommend. It's consciousness that's fundamental
0: and the physical world arises from underlying facts about mind or consciousness.
1: We explore panpsychism, of course. We talk about the science of mind, the nature of reality and consciousness, as well as the multiverse, AI, and spirituality. And it's coming right up, but first. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media, this beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadney. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, it was really utterly fascinating talking to Philip. And this conversation is one that I must admit began to stretch just past the boundary of my intellectual capabilities. Uh, And I mean that in the most enjoyable way possible. So from the mystery of my mind to the mystery of yours, please enjoy this appearance in consciousness, my conversation with Philip Goff. Welcome to Los Angeles, welcome to the United States. I know that you were just in London and New York City engaging in debates on the nature of consciousness. How did that go?
0: Yeah, it was it was great fun. It was brilliant. There was sold out theaters of just the general public first in London then in New York. Just it's incredible actually to see people so many people interested, interested in, in science and
1: consciousness.
0: <laughs> it was unbelievable and you know great questions and you know hanging out chatting to people afterwards and yeah, it was lo- it was really loads of fun. It's pretty cool.
1: Well, I'm delighted to have you here today. This is a long time in the making. I think uh, it's been a couple of years of us going back and forth. The pand- yeah. We were trying to do this before the pandemic and uh, it took a while, but here we are. We got there in the end. Exactly. Thanks for <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so today, the intention is to tackle the hard problem of consciousness. I think Absolutely. in order to you know engage in that discussion, we have to define our terms a little bit and set the context and and the terrain before we even define consciousness. Though maybe it's worth explaining why it is a hard problem. Like we call it the hard problem. Mm. What is the 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 kind of genesis of characterizing? this in that form.
0: Yeah, I think that is a good place to start because I think so many people in my view, misunderstand the nature of the problem. And I think that is one of the things that's really starting to block progress. So, I mean, the way this, maybe I could start with the way it's standardly set up. Mm-hmm. It's standardly characterized as a purely scientific problem. You know, the the challenge of explaining how brains produce consciousness. You know, how electrochemical signaling is able to bring about this inner world of colors and sounds that each of us knows every second of waking life. And and the thought is generally, oh, you know, we just need to plug away with our standard ways of investigating the brain and we'll crack it. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that actually what we have at root here is, is a philosophical rather than a purely scientific problem. And I think until we confront that the philosophical underpinnings of the problem, we're not really gonna make progress towards a solution.
1: Right, and, and talk a little bit about your evolution to that realization that mm. the answers that we seek lie in more of a philosophical exploration than a materialist physics, hard science yeah. path. Yeah,
0: well, this is an old problem going back a few centuries. It's what's traditionally been known as the the mind-body problem. And I think the problem arises because we have two very different ways of accessing reality. Perception and introspection. So through perception, we access the physical world around us via our senses. And we've learned to do that more accurately and precisely through science. And through introspection, we access consciousness via our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. So the challenge of the mind-body problem then is how to bring together these two seemingly very different things, consciousness and the physical world, into a single unified picture of reality.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And broadly speaking, there are, there are three options. Option one, the materialist option is that the, it's the physical world that's fundamental that we know through science and consciousness somehow arises from physical processes in the brain. Second option, the one I prefer, panpsychism, turns that on its head, right? So it's, it's consciousness that's fundamental and the physical world arises from underlying facts about mind or consciousness. Third option, dualism, which is the option that we take both consciousness and the physical world as fundamental, but different aspects of reality.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is, this is an old problem philosophers have wrestled with for hundreds of years. And it's essentially a philosophical problem because All of those three views I've just described are empirically equivalent, which means you can't do an experiment to distinguish between them. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, it's not in essence, experiments are very important in ways we could talk about, but it's not in essence a scientific problem. So I think it's almost like we've taken this ancient philosophical problem, labeled it science, and then we find science can't answer it. It's like maybe, you know, like trying to solve a, a math problem looking down a microscope or something. We, we need to understand what, what, the, the, what the problem essentially is.
1: Wouldn't the materialists contend that we can solve it with hard science. We're just not at the point where we're capable of doing it yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it's a tempting thought. I mean, and that, that's, I, well, I was just debating in London a couple of nights ago, Anil Seth, the mm, neuroscientist. Sure. Really great neuroscientist, a good friend of mine as well as a philosophical enemy. We, you yeah. know, we, we've debated each other a couple of times now. And this is his line, you know. We've um, he makes the analogy to life. You know, we used to think life was this big mystery. Maybe we'd never give a scientific explanation without the supernatural vital spark or something. But then we plugged away with the science and the problem kind of dissolved. And so he thinks the same is gonna happen with consciousness. But I think that's that's not a good analogy because life was a purely scientific problem. It was just about accounting for observable data, what
1: you can observe about the, the living functions of organisms. In other words, defining what constitutes being alive versus inanimate.
0: Yeah, explaining what organisms can do, what they're made of, how they behave, how they function, where they came from. That's where evolution comes in. But the distinctive thing about consciousness is that it's not publicly observable, right? I can't cut open your head and look in your brain and see your feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness, not from experiments. It's not something we discovered in a particle collider, we know about consciousness in a very different way, just Mm -hmm. from our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. If you're in pain, you're just directly aware of your pain. Now, you know, science is used to dealing with things you can't observe, like fundamental particles or quantum wave functions or even other universes, some physicists entertain. But there's a really important difference in the case of consciousness. In all these other cases, we theorize about things we can't observe in order to explain what we can observe. Mm. That's the whole task of science, explaining the publicly accessible data of observation and experiments. But in the case of consciousness, that's not what we're doing. In the case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. <laughs> and that's why it's, it's, it's a wholly different Kettle of fish. Do you have that ex- expression? Kettle yes. Of fish? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's 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 almost too difficult to even talk about because yeah. you can't tease out or parse consciousness from anything else. Like it is mm. the essence of being. Right. There is no. There is nothing that is not conscious experience. Yeah. So you can't create a distance between yourself and the subject of the discourse, which is consciousness, because you are participating in it, right? Is that a way? Absolutely. I don't know. It's like, it's a very strange thing. So, so before we even go any further, like mm. let's just define consciousness, like how you define it, how you think about it. So, we know what we're talking about here.
0: It's, 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 a, it's a good place to start because it is such a slippery word that people use in all sorts of different ways, but, The way I would define it, it, which is is pretty standard, I think, among both philosophers and scientists, is that your consciousness is just what it's like to be you. Mm -hmm. So right now you're having a visual experience of this room, an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you. If you pay attention, you can notice the tactile sensations of the chair under your body. This is all... Aspects of what it's like to be you right now—all right. aspects of your consciousness.
1: This is the know. the classic kind of Nagel definition. That's right, right Nagels. I find you know. it to be not that satisfying, though. Mm. Like it, it to me, it feels like. It's similar to the Supreme Court's definition of pornography, like you know it when you see it. <laughs> it's sort of like, what is it like to be you is what consciousness, it's, it feels circular. Like yeah. you're defining consciousness as someone who is experiencing consciousness.
0: Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think it you know, it is circular because I think what we're dealing with is essentially a primitive concept. Mm-hmm. You can't define it in other ways, uh, maybe it's like, Louis Armstrong, when asked about, allegedly asked what jazz was. He said, if you have to ask, you'll never know. Mm -hmm. But um, for some people that Nagel term works. So Nagel said in his famous paper, what's it like to be a bat from the seventies? He said, something's conscious if there's something that it's like to be it. So there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked, to take a vivid example we tend to think there's nothing that it's like for a table to be cold or to be kicked or to be sawn in half. There's nothing that's like from the inside, as it were. Uh, So for some people that works, I don't know how well it translates actually. And some people like yourself think, I mean, I find most people just when you say experience or subjective experience, they kind of get onto it. And you know, teaching philosophy undergraduates, there's a lot of philosophical concepts they find it hard to get a grip on. But this one, people, mm. tend to, people tend to get pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who think there isn't a real concept here and we're playing language games and wasting our time. But most people on both sides of the debate tend to think there is a notion we can get onto and work with here. Right.
1: So we have this materialist notion, which is that the nature of consciousness is something that can be deduced through the scientific method at some point. Right, Then we have, um, we have this dualist notion, which is a much more mystical notion, which is that there is the material world that we can study. Then there is this world of consciousness that lives in, a, in some kind of realm beyond matter that we don't quite understand and to which the scientific method does not apply. Both of these are problematic from your perspective. Panpsychism is sort of the you know the best explanation from your point of view in a world in which nothing is quite adequate in terms of understanding or explaining the nature of what consciousness is is that a fair yeah assessment? i think
0: so i think maybe dualists contemporary dualists might push back a little at, at, at the at the way you describe the position There i suppose we do tend to think of it as something kind of mystical and religious supernatural but actually the, probably the most famous contemporary dualist, David Chalmers, who was in the audience at the New York debate last night. I mean, I think he's probably the most secular pro-science atheist guy I've ever met. And um, I once asked him if he was religious and he said, only in the sense that the universe is cool. And that's the sort of, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> he calls himself a naturalistic duelist. So he thinks um, consciousness is not physical. It's separate from the brain and the, it's, it's separate, at least from the physical processes in the brain, but he wants to bring it into the scientific story. He wants to expand science to incorporate this non-physical element. Mm-hmm. And so he postulates what he calls psychophysical laws. These are special laws of nature over and above the laws of physics which somehow connect up the physical world to consciousness. And he thinks then it's, it's then a scientific question. We need to work out what these laws are. We should look to neuroscience. Right. So he, he, he wants to sort of expand science. And um, even with materialism saying it's the scientific option, I suppose I would qualify that a little bit by saying the materialist tries to explain consciousness in terms of physical science, mm-hmm. chemistry physics, neuroscience, these kind of things. So, so, so that's the, the materialist position that I ultimately think is inadequate. But science, science could be something a bit more general. Science doesn't have to be tied to physical science understood as chemistry, neuroscience, and so on. So I guess all of us would want to say, you know, we're not giving up on science. It's just some of us like David Chalmers from his perspective, his dualist perspective, me from my panpsychist perspective, wanna have a slightly more expansive conception of what science mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that,
1: expans- that, that expansive notion of it would consider things like particle physics or, or string theory. You know, when you sort of think about what we don't understand about physics and science, we think of things like dark matter, et cetera, you know, like these mind blowing kind of concepts that that you know me as a non scientist you know have a difficult time just understanding the idea of you know alternate realities and parallel all these sort of things that 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 quantum physics contemplates, perhaps there is some explanation or or path to clarity that can be gleaned from those disciplines that we haven't quite uh, mastered at this point.
0: Yeah, so it's, you know, I'm not here to tell scientists not to do their job or to do it differently. It's about having a more expansive conception of what science is, because the way we we currently think about science, the whole task is accounting for the data of observation and experiments. Mm that's that's the job once we've done that if we could have some grand unified theory that accounts for the data of observation and experiments that's job done we can pat ourselves on the back and go home but i want to say that's 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 not all that we need to explain because there's this other thing we know about this other thing we know to be real that's not known about for observation and experiments Namely consciousness, something we know about in a quite different way, just through being immediately aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to expand the task of science and we need to be aiming to the- to construct a theory that can accommodate both the data of observation experiments, of course, but also this private, privately known reality of consciousness. So... I mean, in Galileo's era, I, I, I frame that as, as expanding science. These days, I guess I would say more about, it's just about appreciating that we need to do philosophy as well as science. Sure. We need to understand that philosophy has a distinctive and ineliminable role to play in this project of finding out the nature of reality mm-hmm. that we're all aiming at.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's both, this goes both to the error that Galileo made from your estimation, but also to the sort of correctness of his assessment that there are things that can be physically measured through scientific tools, and then there are other things that are not that require a different sort of toolkit, I guess, to better understand. So explain why you made this the title of the book, yeah. and where that bifurcation you know has kind of led science in terms of how we think about consciousness perhaps wrongheadedly.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a somewhat provocative title. I actually I'm a huge fan of Galileo. It's a, it is
1: a clickbaity kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: There was an earlier How book by uh, Antonio Damasio called called Descartes' Error, and I guess I'm a bit a bit mm. sick of everyone bashing Descartes, so I thought I'll provoke a little by uh, having get Galileo's error. But um, no, I think Galileo in many ways had a much better understanding of these issues than we do now. What Galileo essentially wanted to do was have science to be purely mathematical, which is something we kind of take for granted now. But this was a really radical, unusual step for Galileo in 1623 to declare, right, from now on, what he called natural philosophy, I guess what we now call physical science, Mm -hmm. is going to be purely mathematical have this purely quantitative language but but i think galileo appreciated that you can't capture the qualities of conscious experience in these terms the that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun the smell of coffee the taste of chocolate you can't capture these qualities in the purely quantitative language of physical science you can't even Articulate them, you know. So Galileo essentially says, "Well, you know, if we if we want a mathematical science, if we want a purely quantitative science, we need to take consciousness outside of the domain of science." Um, so, so Galileo's worldview: you have this division between two domains. You have the domain of science, the physical world with its purely mathematical, quantitative properties and the domain of consciousness consciousness with its qualities colors sounds smells tastes and that that you know that that's gone really well and i think we're now at a point where people think oh it's gone really well it's gone so well it's going to explain consciousness mm-hmm. but the irony is it's it it's the project of physical science has gone so well since and arguably because Galileo put consciousness outside of its domain of inquiry. So the fact that physical science has done incredibly well, once we take consciousness out, doesn't really, isn't really gonna give us confidence that it's gonna be able to deal with mm. consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. That's the- uh, Right,
1: and, and the tricky thing here, uh, you know, at the risk of, uh, of sounding like this is gonna take a turn into like bong hit philosophy is, that science can explain for to to extend the chocolate metaphor, like science can explain what chocolate is, the chemical composition of chocolate, uh, what happens uh, you know, to your nervous system when that chocolate hits your taste buds, et cetera. but what it can explain for or account for is the experience of enjoying chocolate like that you know that is like a incalculable thing that exists beyond language or Uh, the ability for the traditional scientific method to adequately explain.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So don't get me wrong, science is crucial for dealing with consciousness. But in relation to the mind-body problem, I think the primary thing science can help us with is working out which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of conscious experience Uh, so you you can't access consciousness through perception you can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings but you can access brains through perception and you can scan people's brains and and you can ask them if Mm -hmm. it's a human being you can ask them what they're feeling as you scan their brain or maybe look for external markers of consciousness and in this way neuroscientists try to work out which kinds of physical activity in the brain go along with which kinds of conscious experience or more generally what what in general what kinds of physical activity in general are, are necessary and sufficient for consciousness and that's really important data but that's not the complete story of consciousness what we ultimately want is an explanation what okay why why does certain kinds of brain activity go along with conscious experience. Why should that be? Mm. And it's, it's then that the philosophy kicks in. Then we're at the mind body problem because that then you, what you need is a theory of ultimate reality that explains why consciousness appears in the physical world mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's where the experiments can't settle the matter because consciousness is not a publicly observable datum. And and that's never, that's never been what physical science has been aiming at, as I think Galileo understood.
1: Yeah, and it's also very difficult. It's, it's, I don't know if I would call it counterintuitive, but it's very difficult. Like our intuition around what consciousness is, is it doesn't really kind of land at the bullseye, right? Which makes this hard to talk about and hard to kind of even wrap our brains around. But essentially, you know, what you're saying, and please again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the traditional, modality for understanding consciousness has more to do with consciousness arising out of matter. And the panpsychist would say that matter arises out of consciousness, which is a way of saying that consciousness is fundamental to Mm -hmm. reality and to matter itself. And that it is at the baseline from which everything from which the genesis of everything else emerges.
0: Yeah, yeah. We have this essentially philosophical choice that we have to confront. It's not a scientific choice that you can settle with an experiment. It's a philosophical choice. Do we start with matter? Do we start with the physical universe and try and get consciousness out? Or do we start with consciousness and try and get the physical universe out? Or do we start with both? That's, that's Mm. That's the dualist option. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if we think about the materialist option of of trying to get consciousness out of physical processes in the brain, we find that that there has been absolutely no progress Mm -hmm. (laughs) on trying to make sense of that. Nobody has ever managed to make sense of how you could get consciousness out of purely physical processes in the brain. The science has gone really well you know, of telling us which kinds of brain activity go along with conscious experience. But no one's ever come up with an explanation of how, how you could get consciousness out of physical brain activity. Whereas when you come to panpsychism, I would argue, actually, we've already worked out how this can be done. The problem is essentially solved. And I guess we can get onto this, but here I think Bertrand Russell Mm. should be seen as the Darwin of consciousness. In the 1920s, he essentially worked out how we could account for physical reality in terms of underlying facts about mind and consciousness. So here's our choice the materialist explanatory project that no one has ever made any progress on, or the panpsychist explanatory project,
1: which is already complete. Mm. So, in my mind, it's kind of a no-brainer. Right, all right. So, (laughs) (laughs) so much to unpack here. But explain to me how you arrived at this perspective yourself. I mean, you're somebody who, by your own admission, like has been obsessed with consciousness from a very early age. So, you've been thinking about this for a very long time. And panpsychism wasn't your initial, you know, knee-jerk default perspective on all of this.
0: Absolutely not, no. So, when when I studied... Philosophy and the dying embers of the 20th century. We were just given these two options. No one told me about panpsychism. We were given I didn't I didn't even read David Chalmers actually as an undergraduate. In my I had philosophy of mind every year in my degree, and I didn't read David mm. Chalmers. But anyway, we had these choices. Are you a materialist? Explain it in terms of physical processes in the brain, or are you a dualist? Somebody who thinks consciousness is outside of the body and the brain. Um, and I wanted to defend the materialist option. I thought this is the, uh, you know, this is the scientifically credible option, not like all that superstitious religious stuff, uh, which I now think is a bit unfair on, on, on the dualist. But anyway, that's how I was thinking as a young man. And, you know, I defended the materialist option. But I slowly came to think, for some of the reasons we've just been talking about, that you just can't explain consciousness in these terms. You can't account for the the qualities of experience the redness of a red experience for example in the purely quantitative language of neuroscience and so i thought well i still want to be a materialist so i decided i was going to deny the reality of my own my own conscious experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is what's become known as the illusionist position uh defended for example by my co-host on my podcast mind chat keith frankish yeah who um denies the reality of consciousness under a certain understanding of that word, at least. Um, So so I I bravely tried to embrace this, you know, and defended it. And, but then I, I think I lasted about three months. (laughs) And then I just remember just kind of sitting in a bar, I don't know, enjoying a drink and a, a cigarette you could smoke in bars in those days and feeling the music, a bit of adrenaline and just just couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't, <laughs> the like reality of having such a You were having such a, such a palpable yeah. experience. It's ob- it's, yeah. just, it, it's not an illusion, isn't it? It's, it's hard to make sense of what an illusion would be without consciousness. And mm-hmm. so, af- but after that, I, I I think I was a sort of closet dualist. So I sort of thought, I had problems with dualism, but thought that seems to be the only problem. And I actually wrote my end of degree dissertation Arguing that the problem is irresolvable, and I just tried to forget about Mm. it. I lived in Poland for a bit, tried to distance yourself from this
1: obsession with consciousness. Read about science
0: (laughs) that was. Yeah, so people think people think I like mysteries because I'm defending panpsychism, but I don't. I don't like mysteries. I hate mis. I want to get rid of mystery. And so Mm -hmm. this was. So I, you know, try to focus on reading about science that was more tractable. And but then I just happened across. Well, actually, an, another article by Thomas Nagel. I think he was a kind of a pioneer. here. He had an article ten, very tentatively defending panpsychism in the 70s. And mm. it was almost apologetic. He was, he was sort of giving an argument, but he was like, of course, this is ridiculous, but it, it's there's something it. to the argument. <laughs> but, um, and I just read it and I just thought, oh my God, that just, it just avoids all the problems, the mm-hmm. problems of dualism on the one hand, the problems of materialism on the other. And it just gave me a kind of deep sense of intellectual peace, you know, that I that there's something that can accommodate both the scientific truth, but also the undeniable lived reality of conscious experience. Mm-hmm. And so that just was transformational really. And And then I just tried to find... Probably the only philosophy department in the UK then that had a panpsychist professor, Galen Strawson, at the University of Reading. And so I started graduate study and turned out okay.
1: Yeah. It's something that I find myself wanting to be true, which is not, you know, a, a sort of place of integrity to, you know, kind of. Look objectively at a situation and yeah. try to understand understand the nature of it, um, but I can't help it It's like I just think like the world would be cooler if if consciousness is the fundamental kind of base layer of everything that exists whether you're whether you you are a complex organism like a human being all the way down to inanimate objects. I just mm-hmm. think that that it colors everything about how you understand the nature of reality. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I mean, I'm right with you that I always say, little catchphrase of mine, we should ultimately be interested not in the view we'd like to be true, but the view that's most likely to be true. And, and you know, in, in Galileo's era and in the new book I'm working on now, you know, I want the truth, you know, but I always, I always find when I'm arguing with somebody who, dis- who I disagree with, I can't deny that there's a bit of me that wants them to be wrong, but there's also a big, a stronger part of me think wondering, are they right? I want to know if they're mm-hmm. right. I want to know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, re- I really do have a, a deep thirst for the truth. To, you know, we'll never know for sure, but to have our best guess. And so, yeah, in Galileo's error and in the book I'm currently working on, you know, most of it is just the cold-blooded case, the evidence, the arguments. But then. We do also want to think about the implications for human existence. So I tend to have a final chapter, you know, yeah. what, what, what does this mean to live this out? And I, you know, so the great thing about panpsychism is I think we've got good reason to think it's probably true, but also I think it's, it's slightly better for our mental and physical health, mm. I think, because it, you know, this isn't, this isn't just an abstract intellectual puzzle. Consciousness is at the root of human identity. It's arguably the source of everything that matters, you know, from deep emotions, subtle thoughts, beautiful sensory experiences. And yet I'm inclined to think our official scientific worldview, materialism, is actually just inconsistent with the reality of consciousness. If it was true, there wouldn't be consciousness. If, If all there was was the purely quantitative story of physical science there wouldn't be qualitative Mm -hmm. experience. And so if, if I'm right about that, which is of course a little bit controversial, then we're at a very odd period of history where our official scientific worldview denies the existence of the thing that's most evident and the thing that gives life meaning. And you know, in a way, that's wackier than any religious- It's the craziest theory. thing ever. Like yeah. when you think of it, think right? If you think of your craziest <laughs> yeah. religious doctrine, I don't know, heaven, hell, whatever. I think we'll look back in history to this time when people had this worldview that denied their own conscious feelings and experiences. And I think what the, how did they get in that mindset? And I, 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 think, I think it's something to do with being blown away by the success of- physical mm. science and the incredible technology, which is, you know, which is incredible, which is rightly celebrated. But it leads us to think, this is the truth. We found the way of getting to the truth. But I think again, the irony is physical science has been so successful precisely because it's it's focused on something quite specific, you know, roughly understanding how stuff behaves. And once you understand how stuff behaves, you can create technology, right? You can manipulate the world. But when we're trying to explain consciousness, that's not what we're trying to do. It's not about explaining behavior with mechanisms. It's about accounting for this invisible, but undeniable Mm. privately known reality of our feelings and experiences.
1: Right, this cornerstone idea that we, when it comes to hard science, we understand matter through the lens of how matter behaves. Yeah. But that doesn't account for what matter actually is. Yeah. And so the thesis is that matter is composed of the 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 base elements of consciousness somehow, somewhere. Yeah. And that this is this is this is like at the you know at the basement floor of everything that is real. It mm-hmm. is infused with consciousness, whether mm-hmm. it's a rock or whether it's a human being. Mm-hmm. And that conscious experience is something that is binary. Something is either conscious or it isn't. But the complexity of that conscious experience toggles up with the complexity of the organism. Yeah. Is that, is that a fair? Yeah. yeah. Sounds,
0: um, I mean, just, I don't think panpsychists necessarily have to think that literally everything is conscious. I think I watched your chat with a, our friend Annika Harris, and I think. Her version of panpsychism would think that um, literally everything
1: is conscious. I know she's a bit agnostic on whether it's mm. true. Um, I mean, her book was my introduction to this mm, notion. We talked book. about it briefly in that podcast, but that's what led, you know, the, yeah. that, that's what led to this conversation. Obviously,
0: yeah, it's 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 been great that she's managed mm-hmm. to really done a lot to get the idea out there. Um, but I don't think panpsychists necessarily have to think that. As you say, the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality have some kind of very, very rudimentary conscious experience. Maybe fundamental particles or maybe universe-wide fields. Many theoretical physicists inclined to think that reality is made up of fields Mm -hmm. rather than particles. But just sticking to particles for the sake of simplicity, just because the particles are conscious It doesn't mean that every random arrangement of particles has consciousness in its own right. So It doesn't mean your socks or rocks or tables and chairs are conscious. It just means that that the smallest building blocks they're made up of have consciousness. So I'd be more inclined to think the conditions under which conscious particles combine to form a, a conscious system that is conscious in its own right are comparatively rare mm-hmm. and natural selection, as it were, discovered this and exploited it. So probably the, the, the natural world is filled with consciousness, but more generally in the universe, more generally, it's probably confined to the level of fundamental physics. But, you know, this is an open empirical question. We need to look to neuroscience to try and pin down and make systematic where we get consciousness at, at the macro level of reality? Mm. So, it's, do you think that neuroscience is capable of doing that? I hope so. I hope so. It's it's it is hard because consciousness is not publicly observable. You know, the neuroscientist Christoph Koch bet David Chalmers 25 years ago that it would all be wrapped up by now. Uh-huh. He bet him a crate of fine wine, but I think it's it's time to pay up because there are you know. A, at least four or five different theories. We're just talking the neuroscientific theories and um, there's really no consensus. But I don't know. I still have hope that we can work with the human case and, and organisms similar to ourselves and try and work out some kind of systematic theory of, of, of what kind of systems do and don't have consciousness. Mm-hmm. I, I still mm-hmm. have hope in that project, yeah. but it's it's not easy at all.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that, first of all, we're even having this conversation, like what you're proposing is is quite radical. Uh, it, it's still, I don't know if it's on the fringes of how we're thinking about consciousness, but if it is less so than it used to be by mm-hmm. dint of your book and Annika and other people who are, you know, thinking about this a little bit more deeply than we have in the past. And I think we're at an interesting kind of juncture in terms of how we're grappling with the nature of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But I would say, I'm interested in from your perspective, you know, most people are probably still quite dismissive of what you have to say. And to straw man, your argument would be to say that there is no scientific or objective evidence to support, any of your thesis. Mm. I agree with you. I
0: agree with you. I'm, mm. I, I don't think you can scientifically prove the particles have consciousness because yeah. <laughs> consciousness is not publicly observable. Yeah. This you is can't, the hard problem. You can't look inside an electron to see if uh-huh. it's conscious just as I can't look inside your brain to see if you're conscious. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, I mean, this is why what, how, more and more what I try to press is just getting people to see. look, this isn't just a scientific issue. There's a philosophical puzzle here that we have to address as a philosophical puzzle. And that, that puzzle arises because this, the puzzle would not arise if the only way we knew about reality was through experiments. Mm-hmm. Then we would just do science. And some philosophers like Daniel Dennett seem to think that is all, all we know about reality. You know, just, just, just through experiments. But I think most people think Now there's another way we know about reality. We know about consciousness through our immediate awareness. Now, as soon as you accept that, then you've got this philosophical challenge. How do we bring these things together? What we know through our senses, the physical world, what we know through directly, our direct awareness of our consciousness, how do we bring them all together? Now Mm -hmm. that's not a scientific question you can answer with an experiment. Mm -hmm. It's a philosophical question. So more and more before, you know, Before we get on to panpsychism, I just want to try and persuade people of that essentially philosophical challenge. And the only way you can avoid it is the way Daniel Dennett does. Daniel Dennett is incredibly consistent. He wants wants to think the the only things we know about reality are through experiments. He knows, I think, that we don't know about our first person conscious experience in that way. So he denies its existence. Mm -hmm. My good friend, Keith Frankish does the same. So that's one option. Mm -hmm. Daniel, Daniel Dennett's consistent. I think I'm consistent. But I think most people are sort of in this confused middle ground where they, of course, accept the existence of consciousness, but then they don't follow the implication of that, that there's something we know about reality that's not from experiments. Right. And so we need to engage with a bit of philosophy. You know, if if you just zealously follow this line that no the only the only way we know anything is through experiments, then consciousness is out the window. So you can't have your cake and eat it. You've got to sure, you know,
1: you, it's it's the it's the philosophical zombie problem, right? And I th- I feel like this this field of consciousness is gaining in kind of mainstream popularity because we're all paying attention to the advent of, of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. We're, we're watching as yeah. AI starts to come online and we're all grappling with that Rubicon, at which point it becomes, quote unquote, conscious as we understand it. So we've seen yeah. these experiments where computer scientists are engaging in dialogue with these AIs and they seem to be mimicking human behavior almost perfectly at times. So. Is that consciousness? I think we would all agree at this phase, it probably isn't, it is a, it is a sort of philosophical zombie situation. Yep. But at what point does it become conscious? And to take your, your, your perspective on panpsychism in that everything on some level is, is, is rooted in some form of consciousness, it's not a stretch to then say that that, that AI has some form of consciousness. It may not be the kind of consciousness mm-hmm. that we think about or that we experience, but there is consciousness baked mm-hmm. into that. And at some point that consciousness will mature to be indistingu- indistinguishable from how we think of our own lived experience. Yeah. No, which is a really tricky, mm-hmm. fascinating, and all, you know, also kind of terrifying thing to think about.
0: Yeah, I mean, you quite read this. read this, this Again, another reason this isn't just a an intellectual game. There are very real world implications. Whether AI is conscious, does that does that mean we have to have think start to think about the ethics of, of artificial systems? Which animals are conscious? Mm-hmm. Forget, you know, forget computers, which animals are conscious, and what does that imply about our, our moral responsibilities? Um are plants conscious? people with I mean, Annika with, talks about yeah. that in her book mm-hmm, the whole mm-hmm. thing
1: with the fungal networks and so, the fir trees
0: but but I, actually i don't think panpsychism necessarily settles any of these issues I, because as i say as a panpsychist you don't have to think every arrangement of conscious particles forms a, a system that's conscious in its own right so for that question actually i would just look to the look to the neuroscience i'm i'm quite mm partial to the integrated information theory of consciousness and if that turns out being right if that turns out to be right actually computers of anything like the kind we have at the moment are not conscious and will not be conscious because i mean the way the way computers work you in contrast to the brain the brain stores information in a way that's highly dependent on on connections and integration and that's the mark of consciousness for the integrated information theory. But the way, we have, the way a computer is set up, that's not the case. It's, you can remove a few transistors, you don't take away too much information. So, so actually, I think, you know, we can distinguish these philosophical and scientific questions and um, I might give the same answers as a, as a materialist or a dualist. So you, there needs to be a marriage here between science and philosophy. But um, yeah, can I just come back to maybe... Just pinning down like why we should believe this. Yeah. <laughs> so just please. I think the core of it is, as you say, of course, it's not it's not about scientific proof. It's not about proof, you can't scientifically prove that electrons are conscious. What, what is attractive here is the beautiful form of explanation that Bertrand Russell came up with in the in, in the 1920s. Uh, that was you know forgotten about for so long, but has, has recently been rediscovered, and that's why there's so much buzz about panpsychism, surprisingly, in, in Anglophone philosophy. So I think what, what Russell was doing in the 1920s was thinking really hard about the fact that our fundamental science is purely mathematical. That's mm-hmm. due to Galileo again. And you know, that's really useful if you're a working scientist, you can have really precise predictions. But what does it mean as a philosopher interested in the ultimate nature of reality that our, our most fundamental science is pure math? And what Russell realized is, is what it means is science isn't really telling us that much about fundamental reality. It's merely describing it in terms of its abstract- How mathemat- it behaves. How it behaves, exactly. Its abstract mathematical structure. So, So really- ultimate reality could be anything as long as it ha- it does it has the right behavior has the right mathematical structure so the way this leads into panpsychism so the panpsychist story is what's at the fundamental level are networks of incredibly simple conscious entities behaving in very simple, predictable ways because they have very simple consciousness Mm -hmm. through their interactions, realizing certain mathematical structures and patterns. And then the thought is, those mathematical structures and patterns are what we call physics. So we get physics out of Underlying facts about consciousness. Absolutely beautiful. So just to sum yeah, it up, a, you can't get, you can't get consciousness. Total right. You can't <laughs> get consciousness out of, physical, out, uh-huh. of, out of physical matter, but you can get physical matter out of consciousness. We know it can be done. So that is why this is such an attractive theoretical story. You know, to my
1: mind, it just solves the problem. And, and that's, that's the case for believing it. So that, there's believing beautiful. it and understanding it from a theoretical point of view. Do you think that that the human animal is capable of understanding it beyond theory to really truly understand it, or is that something that eludes our capacity and our limited, you know, faculties?
0: It might not be possible to fill in all the gaps. I was talking to um, Rebe- Rebecca Goldstein last night, who's. Uh, was it was in this debate in New York last night, who who said it in on the stage in her youth she was sympathetic to panpsychism and um but she now thinks, you know, there's gonna be there's gonna be there's so much we could never know. For example, what is it like to be an electron? Mm-hmm. Okay, say say we accept there's something that's like to be an electron. Uh-huh. What is it like to be an electron? I mean, as Nagel pointed out, we don't even know what it's like to be a bat. Are we ever gonna be able to and, and then think about our own experience that the, so many different kinds of qualities, all the different colors and the difference between color and sound and proprioception. You know, that's your mm-hmm. awareness of where your bodily parts are. All of these these qualities that seem to have nothing to do with each other. You know, you seem like, what, what does color have to do with sound? There seems such radically different kinds of quality. Are we ever going to be able to have some theory that, can predict the very precise quality of human experience from the kind of consciousness at the level of particles that it emerges mm. from. Can we, will we ever be able to do that? I don't yeah. know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we won't be able to fill in all the details just because to understand something's consciousness, you be, you have to be able to adopt its perspective. You have to be able to, as it were, look out of its eyes. We can't adopt the perspective of a creature that echolocates its way around. So maybe we won't be able to fill in all the details, but actually I think I think that in very broad terms, that explanatory story Russell tells, I think is pretty explicable actually. I think it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And so I, I make the analogy to natural selection, right? There's the, the basic genius insight Darwin had, or Wallace rather, you know, there was the other guy Wallace who had it at yeah. the same time and I always feel a bit sorry for him anyway that genius idea of evolution by natural selection that just made so intelligible how you could get complex organisms emerging without design. And then, you know, you have to fill in the details and it takes a century to Mm -hmm. get to DNA. That's why I think, you know, the story Russell told about how you can get the physical universe out of more fundamental facts about consciousness, you can do it because physics is purely mathematical. So as long as the, the consciousness stuff gives you the right mathematical structures. You've got physics. I think that makes perfect sense. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, the eureka moment to me reading about this stuff. But whether the way we filled out the Darwinian project and continue to do so, whether we can ever do that with something like consciousness that's not
1: publicly observable, I don't know, but we can. Yeah. we can have a good go. Well, I think that, you know, to your point about, forget about trying to understand what it's like to to have the experience of being a bat, let alone an electron. I think that our instincts around our own conscious experience are not great, right? Like we know that we're having a conscious experience, but I don't feel like we're very astute in understanding the parameters of what that is, right? And so for example, if you're to do Sam Harris's uh, meditations and waking up, a lot of the prompts yep. in his meditations are around trying to qualify that for you, trying to get you to understand that you're not being made aware of consciousness, but that you are aware as consciousness, that mm. everything that you are experienced from the pro, what is it, pro, pro perception? Yeah, to, you know, Every thought that occurs to you the the you know extent of your visual field, what you're hearing, everything is but an appearance in consciousness mm-hmm. right and to kind of break that illusion of the observer of your conscious experience mm-hmm. like I had always thought of it as like my I know my mind is running a loop and I can have distance between what I would call my higher consciousness and, and like the ruminations of my you know, running mind to say, oh, it's interesting that I'm feeling that way or I keep thinking this, I should stop doing that. that, that there seems to be a, a dualistic yeah. kind of like relationship there. Sam would say, no, this is an illusion. It is all just appearances in this field of consciousness that is everything so much so that you can't even find the locus of it. Like we have mm. this instinct that it lives in our head, right? Yeah. Like our who we are, our identity is this thing behind our face. All my instincts tell me that that's true. And, you know, Sam's position would be to disabuse you of that notion, to get you to understand that that is just part of the conscious experience, but it is not rooted in true reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean this is again what an unusual phenomenon this is that to understand it you can't go and look down a microscope to understand right. it you've got to turn your attention on yourself and as you say part of that is re- breaking through our preconceived ideas about our own consciousness even ways in which we can even get our own our, our own consciousness wrong i mean a lot of evidence comes out of that from neuroscience mm-hmm. But also through meditation, having a, 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 a deeper understanding of, of what's going on there. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of, I guess, more agnostic on, on the self than, than, than Sam and Annika are. Maybe I need to meditate a bit more. But I mean, what, one thing that makes me hesitate is I do think there is a deep unity to conscious experience. So if you... Right now, I'm having a multitude of different experiences, colors and sounds and tactile sensations. But they're not just existing in isolation from each other. They exist as aspects of a single unified field of experience, if you like. Mm -hmm. So there's something unifying the diversity there. And I think that's traditionally... Philosophers have, have plugged the, the, the self in there, the I there as the thing. Maybe it's very different to how we ordinarily think about it, but there's something there which is parceling off, which is um, bringing unity to the diversity, which we might call the self. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's a further question, does this thing persist for long periods of time? My, my PhD mentor, Galen Strawson, has a book, Selves, where he defends the idea that there are unified selves but they just last a couple of seconds mm. they so there's these sort of chains of little unified selves that pop up and disappear and or another alternative that some people have defended is that um the, the unified self lasts as long as a period of waking consciousness but when you have dreamless sleep or um general anesthetic you that self ceases to be and 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 an, Another one pops up when you wake up. So yes, I, I I recently had a s- small operation with general anaesthetic. I was kind of terrified, thinking, who's going to wake up? Is uh-huh. it going to be some different person with with all my memories? But so I, I'm I'm very agnostic on all this stuff. I'm not as uh, Sam and Annika seem seem pretty confident. Maybe, maybe I just haven't meditated. Well, enough.
1: I mean that goes in. Yeah, the nature of self and identity, and then of course, you know, the implications uh, for for free will and choice that that come with that. I mean, I think it's pretty fascinating to assume the panpsychic perspective. Begs questions of self and identity, right? Mm-hmm. If, if consciousness is the base layer to everything and it pervades everything, you know what are the what are the implications for identity? Mm-hmm. You know this sense that we're always evolving, we're always changing. That 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 consciousness is this on some level like independent of who we are in this sense of personhood, uh, and as we Grow older and we look different. When we look in the mirror, there is this, you know, uniformity that we are the same person and have always been the same person. Even if we undergo surgery or go to sleep at night, yep. we wake up and we have those memories. And, you know, there is a, a you know, an unbroken kind of chain of essential experience yeah. that we consider to be part and parcel of who we are. Mm-hmm. And so, does panpsychism upend that or change how we think about? identity in that regard?
0: Possibly, depends, it depends what, what direction you take it in, I think. So I guess there are connections between panpsychism and certain forms of Buddhist thinking or the Advaita Vedanta tradition in um, Hindu mysticism. Um, my friend, the, the Australian philosopher, Miri Al-Bahari defends a sort of advi- Advaita Vedanta inspired sort of mystical, philosophy rooted in that tradition and it's just interesting because she defends it with the tools of our philosophical tradition analytic philosophy mm-hmm. in this sort of dry rigorous cold-blooded way and but she's defending this kind of um mystical philosophy on the basis that she thinks we sh- we should take the testimony of expert meditators as as a sort of expert me. Mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't, I, I believe the universe is 14 billion years old. Is it 14, 13, something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know all the science, yeah. but I trust the experts. So she thinks we should think the same about expert meditators. But um, that's one, I mean that, and you know, but on the other hand, another great panpsychist philosopher, who was in the audience at this debate in New York last night, Luke Roloffs, mm. who is a panpsychist, because he wants to explain consciousness but he has no mystical or any kind of spiritual tendencies insofar as that takes you beyond the regular scientific picture. That's no fun. And so uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's lacking the fun part. He's a lovely guy. He's, <laughs> he, he is a fun guy. Um, but, um, so I don't, so I, the way I normally tend to say is, you know, it's, there's no necessary connection between panpsychism and anything spiritual, mm-hmm. but Maybe panpsychism is more consonant with those sort of spiritual views. So you, you know, if you, if you're a materialist, it's hard to take mystical experiences seriously as revealing to you something about ultimate reality, because ultimate reality for the materialist is what you get from physics, yeah. and it doesn't seem physics. Physicists aren't telling us about this unconditioned consciousness at the root of things. But if you are, if you're a panpsychist and you already think there's fundamental consciousness at the base there, then you know it's not too much of a leap to move to those views. I don't know, again, I, I'm agnostic. You know, in the case of panpsychism and that Russell story, to, I really find that persuasive. But here, if Miri or Anika are telling me, you know, trust meditators, I, don't, I mean, there are different meditators in different traditions. There does mm-hmm. seem to be in each tradition, something about in some sense, transcending the self and some deep oneness, but different traditions interpret that in different ways. Right. You know, the, the Buddhists say the self doesn't exist. The Hindus say um, it's, it does exist, but it's identical with the sort of divine mind or something. The Abrahamic traditions think it's about understanding our unity with, with the divine. And so, so, I don't know. I think maybe there's, there's something there that's interpreted in different ways in different traditions. So I'm, I'm not so confident that the, the self doesn't exist as yet.
1: what it brings up for me is this idea of of connectivity like if yeah. if consciousness pervades everything and we don't live in a vacuum and there are you know billions of atoms separating us as we talk today on some level we're connected and there's a consciousness that that is part of that connectivity right and when you think of it from that perspective you can't help but think of the nature of a unified consciousness or almost like it brings the, it brings up the question of like a hive mind consciousness. Like if you're, I'm sure when you flew here from New York and you were, mm-hmm. you know, descending over Los Angeles and you're looking down at the urban sprawl and the cars and all of that, it does look like, you know, either like the the semiconductors of a computer or the mm-hmm. you know the veins and arteries and, and organs of some kind of super organism in which human beings are participating and and performing some sort of function without their conscious awareness because we're all sort of operating under some broader consciousness that isn't part of our conscious awareness but is consciousness nonetheless that's driving our behaviors and our decisions in some kind of macro way in the same way mm-hmm. that ants construct an anthill or birds, you know, know how to flock together to, they're not making conscious decisions. They're just operating under some kind of instinctual impulse that perhaps has something to do with the consciousness that pervades everything. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but like, to yeah, like I think, entertain that as a thought experiment, I, I think is interesting.
0: I think there's, there's definitely, in panpsychism, there's, it, there's a picture of the universe we, we fit into much more. You know, we're conscious creatures in a conscious universe. It's, it's a universe that somehow welcomes us more. And certainly, going a bit further than that, there does seem to be something consistent. You know, you give people psilocybin, they, they talk about some mm-hmm. deep connectedness, some deep oneness. They talk about some living presence pervading all things. And I take that very seriously. And, and some people might say, well, maybe that's just your brain doing funny things. But I, I always come back to the, um, you know, to that challenge. I always come back to the response of William James in his great book in the 19th century, The Varieties of Religious Experience. When you say, well, why should, why should a mystic trust their experience? trust that it's telling them something about ultimate reality. He says, well, you can't know, but it's it's the same with ordinary sensory experiences, right? I've got this experience at this table here. I can't get outside of my consciousness and check. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just trust that your ordinary sensory experiences are connecting you with reality. So, so um, not Russell in this case, William James says, if you say it's it's okay for ordinary people to trust their um, sensory experiences, but it's not okay for a mystic to trust their mystical experience. There's a sort of double standard there. Right. I think all knowledge is rooted in just the decision to trust experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But so the, but there's if something that I take seriously, but there's just such
1: diversity in how that's yeah.
0: interpreted in different
1: spiritual. But what, traditions. It, what does it mean to trust experience, right? Mm. If, if everything is an appearance in consciousness and when we put our hand on this table, we feel it, we know our hand is here, But actually, that sensation isn't occurring in the hand, it's occurring in the brain. In the same way, pain isn't, you know, if I cut my finger, the pain isn't happening in the finger, it's Mm -hmm. happening in the brain. And if that's just an appearance in consciousness, it's not that much of a leap to then wonder are we, you know, in this simulation experience? Like, how do you think about the notion that perhaps we're in the matrix or, Mm that we're all you know, operating in accordance with some kind of hive mind consciousness that's driving us towards the innovation of an artificial intelligence that will ultimately supplant us. Wow, <laughs> scary stuff. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe this comes
0: to maybe the difference between me and Donald Hoffman, for example. You know, there's certainly something very close about these views that they have consciousness at the base and everything else flows from that. But Donald has this idea, I guess that in some sense, the physical world doesn't really exist. Uh, It's just tools on our interface, Mm -hmm. um, icons on our interface rather. And I don't really feel, feel the need to go that far. I'm not seeing the compelling reason to go that far rather than just saying the physical world is very different to what we thought. Hey, it turns out it's made up of consciousness. But I don't see why. That's just a surprising theory about the nature of physical reality. Doesn't mean we have to say physical reality doesn't really exist. Mm. So maybe there's this. I mean, there's there's another view on the table here: idealism, which I think Donald Hoffman. I don't think he calls himself an idealist, but I think it would fit into that camp that, in some sense, the physical world is an illusion, or it's not fully real, or it's it's undergirded by more fundamental facts about mind and consciousness. Whereas the panpsychist tends to say, no, the physical world is real. It's really out there. Mm -hmm. It's just made up of consciousness. Mm. So maybe these are just two slightly different takes on the same idea, but.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I think another cool aspect of contemplating panpsychism is this sense of unity. Like if everything is consciousness, that helps us to really grok that we're all in this together, yeah right, so whether you know when we're facing these existential threats to the you know health of the planet and the mm-hmm. future of humanity, climate change et cetera um it does put you in a more um compassionate you know mindset of cooperation, right, like yeah. There is an interconnectivity between everything. We are interdependent and linked in ways that, you know, perhaps we haven't fully contemplated previously.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I in my book Galileo's Era, I do kind of speculate about what it'd be like to be a child raised as a as a panpsychist, you know, and raised to see the movement of a plant as in some way expressing its desires, its inclinations, and. Um, because, I mean, our, our official scientific worldview tells us that a tree is just a mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of ridiculous to hug a mechanism. It's sort of what, you know, that's why we think of tree hugging as kind of idiotic or some people do. And if you're thinking of a tree as a mechanism, then it's, it has no moral significance in its own right. It's just important because of looking nice or what it can do for us. Whereas if you think of a tree as a, a conscious organism in its own right, then the tree has a moral status in its own right. And, you know, if you see these terrible burning of forests in Brazil of, of late, mm-hmm. hopefully changing now. Um, you know, if you see that as the burning of conscious organisms, it really, it really fires up your environmental desires to, make, to, to, make, to, to solve the environmental problem even yeah. more significant. But yeah, I haven't managed to persuade my kids. I was trying to ask my kids if they think um, trees are conscious. And my daughter said, no, they're outside. So the, so I don't know what- <laughs> you, can only, the, you can only be conscious if you're <laughs> indoors. Well, actually my daughter said something great to me though, my five year old, we were on the bus. And I said, actually, Annika and Sam wouldn't like the, the sentiments here, but we were on the bus. I said, do you think the bus is conscious? And she said, no, it's just a machine. And I said, well, aren't you a machine? And she said, "No, I've got. I'm a person, which means I don't have things inside me that make me move." I thought that was, you <laughs> know, it's a real kind of a, does, a free though? will, free will um, yeah. sense there, wasn't there? That it's you know, there's not. Mm. I'm not a mechanism, I guess. But yeah. right. anyway, do with what that what you will. Yeah,
1: I do love the idea of of. You know, really understanding the conscious, uh, you know, aspects of ecosystems. We think of a tree as a tree; it's an independent entity. But then, to really understand it, is to know that there are, you know, this this complexity of underground root systems that interact with um, mycelium and the communication that exists between trees, among trees that partition so much as to like take care of progeny of trees, like understanding, yeah. oh, this, is, this tree came from me, so we're gonna, and the way they share resources, et cetera, like it's the more you learn about that, the easier it is to take that leap of, of philosophical faith. Yeah. Into this into this realm, and it is like again, like calling myself out like I want it to be true because I just <laughs> think it 's beautiful, and it allows me to inhabit a space of awe and wonder that mm. I think is just a you know a better way of living, quite frankly mm-hmm. um, so uh yeah i mean
0: on on the trees there i do I do try and encourage yeah. my kids to think about, which is just science now it 's uh-huh. not nothing to do upon psychism that the 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 so-called wood wide web the interconnections of trees under the ground sharing across species you know human beings struggle to cooperate between ethnicities sometimes you know these trees are they helping are, each other know, out across an species an example so that there, we should yeah, yeah exactly there is a buzzing blooming community underneath our grounds as we're walking right. through the forest we just we're just seeing These things that stick out of the ground, but you know, you you keep coming back, Rich. To um, you want to believe it, but I think you know sometimes we we don't always have to think you know is this true or is this not true, is this true or is it bullshit? You can you can engage with something, can't you? You can engage with a possibility, as a possibility, Uh you can um, work with a possibility. You know, I think if you're thinking about spiritual experiences. Or experience of the transcendent or something I think people people think either either you think they're real or you think it's just bullshit something in your brain, something going wrong with your brain, but there's a middle way option of engaging these kinds of experiences and working with them in a spiritual practice or whatever without definitely deciding i mean who who the hell knows what's mm-hmm. going on you know you can mm-hmm. you can engage with experiences whilst remaining agnostic about. So here veracity. you are taking this middle path again, right? I'm always, like, I hate yeah, the dichotomies, yeah. you know, It's always the dichotomies mm-hmm. like, are you a US capitalist or a Soviet communist? You know, are you a materialist yeah. or let's a dualist? Let's all get along,
1: let's merge these worlds <laughs> because yeah, it, it is It is natural to go from where we just were into this into this realm of spirituality, religion, what is God? Like when you think of consciousness pervading everything, is that not God or could you not perceive that? as, you know, some definition of, uh, you know, of, of God in that, in, in perhaps a secular sense. Mm. Spinoza's God, I guess, mm. yeah. Yeah, so if,
0: so we've been talking about panpsychism as the little particles being conscious, but as we've also said, theoretical physicists tend to prefer the idea that it's universe wide fields that are the fundamental building blocks and particles are just kind of local excitations in fields. If you combine that view with panpsychism, then it's the, it's the universe-wide fields that are the fundamental forms of consciousness and hence the fundamental conscious entity, if there is one, is, is the bearer of those fields, i.e. the universe itself. And I actually, I actually think that's a, that's a more attractive philosophical conception of panpsychism as well, sometimes called cosmopsychism, you know, that the universe is the fundamental conscious entity.
1: Um, So there's a macro field of energy that enervates the subatomic particles that comprise the nature of consciousness. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so
0: the fundamental thing is this universe wide mind and everything else are just aspects of that universe-wide consciousness i actually defended something like this in my academic book so i first wrote an academic book right. consciousness and fundamental reality which is probably a bit impossible to make sense of if you haven't done some graduate philosophy study but that was the direction i t- I, t- I took that in, in in my academic book and mm-hmm. so yeah but then is that it's a further question do we want to call that god i mean you might just think I mean
1: we could use a different word. God is yeah. a problematic word. It's just, you know, fraught. So we use a different word.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you might just think it's the even if the universe is conscious, maybe its experience is just a meaningless mess. It doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean it's got intelligence or goal directedness. Um, you know, our, our consciousness is the result of millions of years of evolution. But it could be that the universe is conscious, but it's just kind of this messy, meaningless consciousness. Mm-hmm. Although I have also explored, if you start from that cosmopsychist position and bring in other kind of data, like the fine tuning of physics, that might push you towards something more like a goal directed conscious entity rather than just a sort of meaningless mess. So, mm. so again, you know, panpsychism doesn't entail anything spiritual or anything in that direction, but it, it can lead you there if you bring in other considerations, I think.
1: And what is, what is your relationship personally with the spiritual and the mystical and all of this?
0: Yeah, well, this is, I guess the, the new book I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I just last week signed a contract with Oxford University Press um, so my my first book was an academic book my second book was aimed at general audience so i want this to be both mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's with an academic publisher but they're going to market it as a, as a as a trade book and and each chapter has a more accessible bit and then a digging deeper bit to try and take you into the more technicalities but what i'm what i'm exploring is the middle way between the middle ground between god and atheism that's that's the pitch really it's you know again again it's all these dichotomies you know it's like whose team are you on richard dawkins or the pope you know and i often mm-hmm. find like when you're talking to people it's like they're trying to they're trying to work out which side you're on and and i just as as the as in the case of materialism and dualism i just came to find actually both the classical theistic religious position and the classic the classical kind of atheist meaningless universe position are pretty implausible for different reasons. I think there's things the traditional atheist picture can't explain, there's things the traditional religious picture can't explain. And there's just a, a huge range of underexplored positions in between. So so that's where I'm currently engaged mm-hmm. at the moment in trying to map and out. And so what that does that territory. look like
1: specifically though? Like how would you characterize that for, for yourself? Not atheist, but not, you know, not the Pope or whatever maybe it's not a, uh, it, you know, a perspective that, that is dogmatic in a religious sense, but mm-hmm. perhaps strains of, of spirituality per- yeah. pervade this. Like, what does that specifically mean? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so one, I mean, so one thing that, that, that motivates
0: me here is the discovery of recent decades that physics, the laws of physics seem to be fine-tuned for the possibility of life in the sense that for life to be possible certain numbers in physics had to fall in an incredibly narrow range such that it looks, it looks incredibly improbable that mm-hmm. just by chance our universe would, would have ended up just by chance with the right numbers for life. So I think that the, the example that seems to puzzle physicists the most is the, um, the cosmological constant. So this was, um, you know, we discovered in the 1990s that the universe is actually accelerating in its expansion and um, so there the, the is postulated a kind of repulsive force, which we refer to as dark energy, and 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 the, and the, and the strength of this force is measured by the cosmological constant. And what you hear high-profile physicists saying is, it's just what that number turned out to be was incredibly surprising, because it's 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 not zero, but it's a really really tiny number. It's like I can't remember the exact number now, but it's like point. Thirty-eight zeros, one-three-eight, mm. or something. It's like mm. tiny number, but it's not zero. And you know, physicists like Brian Greene saying you just you don't find these kinds of numbers in physics. And it didn't seem to fit with other things we know about physics. But it's fortunate we did have a num that kind of number because if it was, if it was a little bit bigger, so if this repulsive force was a was a bit stronger everything would have shot apart too mm-hmm. quickly for gravity to clump things together into stars, planets. We wouldn't have had any kind of structural complexity. Whereas if it had been less than zero, then it would have been a an attractive force rather than a mm-hmm. repulsive force. So it would have added to gravity rather than countering it. And everything would have collapsed in on itself within a split second of the start of the universe. So to have any kind of structural complexity or, and life That number had to be in this
1: incredibly narrow range. So that's like the God number, right? Like that's the number you're like, "This, this had to be the result of some kind of higher intelligence or divinely inspired design. I would put it slightly more generally than that. I would say, look, we face a choice.
0: Either it's just chance that those numbers are right for life or... We have the numbers right for life because they are the right numbers for life. In other words, that there's some some other type, some of kind life of goal directedness, some kind of goal directedness at the fundamental level. So, and I, you know, I consider a lot of different. So, so some people would say, "Oh, that's God," mm-hmm. but I don't like that hypothesis <laughs> <laughs> for for a familiar reason. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it's it's really implausible that a a loving or powerful God that could create anything would create a universe so full of suffering and seemingly preventable evil and so so to well, my mind you're, you know, that's the,
1: that's like the sort of anthropomorphized god right mm. yeah, the god in the, the god yeah. defined as some kind of human like yeah, uh, right. intelligence right. that has a moral compass and a and a code of ethics and yeah you know, marching orders for, you know, what, what the world should look like or the universe should look like as opposed to some kind of intelligence that doesn't adhere to that limited structure of, of intelligence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what
1: I'm rejecting
0: is the very traditional Western idea of God as mm-hmm. we, we, philosophers call it the Omni God, you know, omnipotent all omniscient, omnibenevolent i.e. all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good. So I, I think there's data that, that that view can't handle. Suffering, evil. But there's also data that the traditional meaningless universe picture can't handle. Right. Namely, the fine-tuning and certain other philosophical considerations. So, but yeah, as you say, that's just the, maybe the the, the very traditional idea of God, but I consider a range of hypotheses in between. So, so basically I consider kind of three three different options. Firstly, kind of non-standard designers. So you might have a bad designer, an indifferent designer, a limited designer, um, or maybe the simulation hypothesis. Maybe we're in mm. a computer simulation and our creator isn't any kind of God-like being at all. It's just some some guy, some scientist in the, in right. the next universe up. Um, so, th- so they're, they're kind of close to God in that they're still designers, just a bit tweaked. But I, it's not obvious to me, actually, this is why I kind of qualified what you said a bit. It's not, it's not obvi- I think the fine tuning is evidence for goal-directedness, but it's not actually obvious to me you need a kind of mind behind goal-directedness. So we're back to Thomas Nagel he had this book in 2012, um, Mind and Cosmos, where he defended the idea of what he called teleological laws. So te- teleology just means the Greek for purpose or goal. Mm-hmm. So he had this idea of laws of nature. So not a, not a personal designer, just laws of nature with goals built into them. So, so you know, the, the standard way we think of laws of physics, they kind of work from past to future. You know, you take what's happening now and that determines what's going to happen at the next moment and the next moment, the next moment. But, the, but Nagel's teleological laws are aiming at some goal, sort of work from future to past. They're mm-hmm. aiming at some goal in the future and impacting on the present moment to, to, to bring us closer to those goals. So maybe there's just a, a law of nature that has to kind of fit in with the standard laws of physics, but which is in some way inclining the universe towards life. And the, and the third hypothesis I consider, which fits with my earlier work on panpsychism is cosmopsychism, right? If you've, if, you're already, if you've already got a conscious universe, then maybe this goal-directedness is just, the goal-directedness of the conscious universe. Maybe in some sense, the conscious universe fine-tuned itself.
1: So, you know- Right, but all- it begs the question of who designed the consciousness in the universe. There's always, mm. uh, you know, there's always another veil to step behind with this. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, I mean, every, every
1: Wittgenstein said explanations have to end
0: somewhere. Everyone has to stop somewhere, you know? The theist stops with God, the atheist stops with the Big Bang or the laws of physics. The question is, is it an acceptable stopping point? To my mind, stopping with the fine tuning is not an acceptable stopping point because it's just, at least in the physics as we understand it now, it's just so wildly improbable that we'd have the right numbers for life by chance. So we can't stop there, but I think we could stop with teleological laws, I don't know, or mm-hmm. some kind of non-standard design. Of course, other people stop at the multiverse. That's I've got other problems with that hypothesis. So I used, I used yeah. to go for the multiverse myself, but I've been persuaded by Philosophers of probability that there's some fallacious reasoning going on in the that whole multiverse. Exploration. Oh, that's interesting.
1: But. I mean, that could be a whole other <laughs> podcast. I mean, because when you get into, I mean, does not an exploration of quantum physics bring this up? Like it it conjures dimensions beyond the perceptible three dimensions to which we experience reality, right? And yeah, and that means that there are alternate. Realities occurring, mm-hmm. theoretically, mm. right? That the math can prove I see. out. All right, is that not the so case? So linking that to the multiverse, you mean? Sure. So yeah. if if that's the yeah, case, right. is that not an argument for the existence of a or the multiverse?
0: Yeah, there's a great philosopher of physics at uh, Birmingham University called Al Wilson who, 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 who takes the, the the multiverse in that direction and. So, I mean, standardly, when, when physicists or philosophers try to explain the fine-tuning in terms of a multiverse, it's the inflationary cosmology models where we have this sort of vastly expanding mother universe, mega universe, and then these smaller bubble universes slow down within it, and we're one of those. But what is less explored, but which has been explored by Al Wilson, for example, is is the um, taking the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and trying to work mm-hmm. on that multiverse to explain fine-tuning. Mm-hmm. But you need, to, you need to at least tinker a bit because so the, the, the many worlds doesn't give you every logical possibility. It gives you every possibility consistent with the laws of quantum mechanics. But as physics is right now, the laws of quantum mechanics are fine-tuned. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so you're going to have to somehow get to possibilities that are where the constants vary. And so that you're gonna—that's—that's moving a little bit beyond just just the many worlds interpretation, and you could try and justify that with um, as you could try and justify that with the need to explain the fine tuning. But this is where I think this this fallacious reasoning comes in. Should I?
1: Yeah, go. Yeah, please. Uh, it is moving beyond my ability to understand <laughs> what's actually <laughs> happening. So though. this well, this <laughs> this is one of the things I'm... So I used to think the multiverse
0: was the obvious explanation of fine-tuning uh-huh. for a long time. I feel kind of stupid. I feel silly defending this cosmic purpose stuff. But I was just persuaded by philosophers of probability that there's some very dodgy reasoning going on here. And, you know, I, I just really believe in that enlightenment aim of, you know... Mm-hmm. Trying to follow the the evidence or the arguments where they go. And this is this is where it's taken me. And this is what one of the things I'm really excited about with this book, actually. This is not my own idea. It's been in the philosophical literature for decades. But it's a typical example of academics talking to themselves. Nobody knows about it outside of academic philosophy, despite huge interest in this fine-tuning stuff, you know, from physicists or theologians or whatever. All right, well I just I'll just run you through the basic idea. There's a huge yeah. discussion here, but I've got an article in in Scientific American making the basic case as well. So the 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 charge is that this inference from fine-tuning to the multiverse commits what's called the inverse gambler's fallacy. Okay. So let me let me try and give you give you an analogy, right? So suppose you and I go to a casino, right? And we walk in and with the, first, the first thing we see is this guy having an incredible run of luck, right? He just keeps winning and just this incredible run of luck. He's rolling double sixes all the time. So I, And then I say to you, wow, there must be loads of people playing in the casino tonight. And you say, what? what? What do you mean? What are you talking? We've just seen this one guy. And then I say, well, look, if there's just one person in, in the casino, then it's incredibly improbable that someone would have such an incredible run of luck. But if there's lots of people playing in the casino tonight, then it's not so surprising that one of them's going to have an incredible run of luck. Now, I think you'd rightly say to me, that's a fallacy. You know, we've only mm. seen this one guy. And no matter, that's our evidence, this one guy. And no matter how many other people there are playing in the casino, it has no bearing on whether this one guy is going to play well. And um, everyone agrees that's a fallacy. So that's the inverse gambler's fallacy. Everyone agrees on that. But it looks like the multiverse reasoning is strikingly similar, at least in, insofar as they're explaining fine-tuning. So they say, oh, wow, look, you know, it's so improbable that physics is fine-tuned for life, has the right numbers for life. We won the cosmic lottery. So there must be loads of other universes where the numbers are really crap. Mm. But it's the same fallacy because all we've observed is this one universe. And no matter how many other universes there are out there, it doesn't make it any more likely that... This, this universe, the only one we've ever observed, has numbers fine-tuned for life. So there's all sorts of discussion and responses and selection effect. And, um, but, you know, I think I, I'm just pretty persuaded that this is just not an option. And so weird as it is, we have to try and make sense of some kind of goal-directedness at the fundamental level of reality. Doesn't need to be the traditional God but it's going to be pretty different to how we normally think of science.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of resisting the temptation to just continue to dig this hole deeper in here. I don't know Go where we're going to end up with it, but I feel like, you know, that, those statements require you to define life in a certain way so yeah. we have this decimal yeah. number and laws of physics and our understanding of 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 what life is and a confluence of circumstances that have allowed us to you know flourish essentially but perhaps if that decimal number was different and the role of the dice to extend the gambler's metaphor was a little bit different and the universe is either expanding or contracting at a, at a different rate, that that would have produced a, a form of life that is something we have no understanding. I,
0: yeah, right I see, of. yeah. right. Yeah, so is it just, so yeah, this is a, you know, this is a, an important response to these arguments. Are they relying on just, our kind of life or carbon-based life mm-hmm. or something. Some of the fine-tuning is to do with carbon. Although even even there, you know, it's, it's not... Carbon isn't just the stuff we're made of. Carbon is incredibly versatile as a chemical element. Um, the number of things it can combine with, I can't remember the details offhand. And, you, you know, you, you need to get stars going and to, to get carbon out of them. Um, but... I think a lot of the fine tuning, or at least some of the fine tuning, it's not just to do with carbon-based life or our kind of life. It's to do with any kind of structural complexity at all, any kind of chemistry at all. So, you know, take the cosmological constant example. Either the universe expands so quickly that no two particles ever meet, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or everything collapsed back on itself in a split second. It's you know, it's that's not you're just not gonna get any kind of it seems, even without being able to pin down exactly what life is, I think we can say in either of those possibilities, you're not gonna get anything sure. we could call life. That would be Yeah,
1: the- I understand. I understand. I, I I think where my mind goes is this idea of taking a step back and having an honest sort of accounting mm. of the capacity of the human mind to understand things, right? And yeah. I think we we are hubritic as a species in terms of what we think we can and can't do. Like I think that we operate with this sensibility that there is nothing beyond our grasp in terms of understanding. It's just a matter of time before we figure it all out. But I think that that is qualitatively incorrect, like if you look at your pet or let's say you have a snake, you could that snake is never going to understand the human language like it just it doesn't have the neural capacity to do that, so why do we think that our neural capacity is complete yeah like we're just missing a lobe or two that would make so many of the questions that we grapple with completely obvious, yep but it just eludes our ability to understand because of our inherent physiological limitations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I've I've got a lot of time for that for that kind of position. In fact, this is the the position um Rebecca Goldstein was defending in this debate I was in last night. I guess it's what philosophers call the mysterian position at least in the context of consciousness that maybe this is just beyond us. You know, dogs can't do mathematics. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the right brains. Maybe solving consciousness or fine tuning is, is, um, is just beyond what humans are able to do. Maybe some higher alien species would, would manage it more easily. But um, while we've got explanations that as far as we can see would do the job, then I think the rational thing to do is to take those... Explanation seriously. I think the, the, the thing with the, the reason people feel nervous with fine tuning is not because we can't think of an explanation. It's because the explanations don't fit with how we've got used to science.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's the same situation as in the um, 16th century when we first started getting evidence that the earth wasn't in the center of the universe. You know, and people couldn't handle it. So they postulated... Little extra orbits of the planets, epicycles, uh-huh. um, in addition to their basic orbits around the Earth, so the idea of everything going around the earth.
1: crazy mental gymnastics, yeah, and then that fit. didn't work, yeah. so it
0: 's epicycles mm. upon epicycles, and you know of course all of that was eventually blown away by Copernicus's simple idea that the earth isn't in the center, the sun's in the center, um, and we think now, I think we think, oh, they were so stupid, you know stupid religious people, we're so enlightened now, but every generation absorbs a worldview that they can't yeah. think beyond. And I, you know, you, you start talking about cosmic goal-directedness with philosophers or scientists, they're going to start laughing at you. As I'm sure, you know, people laughed at when you started saying, you know, maybe the earth is going around the sun. I just think there's always that cultural baggage that it's hard to get beyond. But I think we've just got to cling to that enlightenment goal of following the evidence where it leads. And to my mind, you know, in our standard ways of thinking about evidence, it's the fine tuning seems to be suggesting Mm -hmm. some kind of goal directedness at the fundamental level. And we've just got to, weird as that is, face up to it. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And I think we can formulate possible explanations. They might be wrong. We can never guarantee that they're the right explanations. But while we can come up with explanations, we should take them seriously. Yeah.
1: Assuming panpsychism to be true, consciousness exists at the fundamental level of matter and reality. What is your sense of what that tells us about the nature of human consciousness at death? Do you have a theory Mm -hmm. as to where that goes or what happens to that?
0: Wow, it's a big question. So, I mean, again, there are are no obvious implications that i mean panpsychism is structurally very similar to materialism and that's part of the reason i think it's quite attractive that it in terms of the causal structure of reality in terms of what stuff does we say physics gets that right it's just that that those structures are filled out in some sense with consciousness and so you know insofar as that our best science tells us that, the, you know, the matter making me up is going to come apart and cease to be then. It looks like materialists and panpsychists are going to be in the same boat. I mean, except, and I very speculatively explore this in the final chapter of my book, these more mystical suggestions that experienced meditators in, in higher states of consciousness somehow become aware that there is something at the core of each conscious mind that is beyond all that change, and it's in some sense timeless or unconditioned or something like that. Mm. Insofar as we take those ideas seriously, that might afford some kind of impersonal, non-individual survival after death. Mm. Um, I think maybe that's that that, the, that, that's the best. That you're That the get.
1: the individual, like the sense of of individuation in the sea of consciousness mm. gets absorbed by the greater ocean of consciousness yeah and gets recapitulated or somehow assimilated into the consciousness of everything
0: yeah and um you know for people who you think of buddhists or advaita vedanta hindus who try to struggle to to get back to that being absorbed into
1: unconditioned consciousness or whatever they try to get rid of the karma the bad karma but but there's a if there's it, a past life you know sort of reincarnation piece to all of
0: it yeah that as well. yeah yeah but suppose that's not true the, the 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 reincarnation bit and the karma bit well maybe at death just everyone gets enlightened because you know the outer layers peel off and you just get absorbed into that unconditioned consciousness at the core i just want to be clear I don't believe this. I I take the idea seriously, on the basis that it's fairly commonly reported experience of people who've explored consciousness in a very deep way. So I, I don't think I'd say you know mm-hmm. I'm confident that's true, but I take it seriously. And it, it, you can do as a panpsychist. I think if you if you're a materialist, you have to say. That can't be true. It doesn't fit with my worldview. But as a panpsychist, it fits with my worldview. I take the possibility seriously. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm also open to life being pretty horrific and tragic. And so who knows? But that's what I'm saying, you know, you can you don't have to Nobody knows what's going on you don't have to we don't have to make decisions to <laughs> you know to engage with these possibilities and to
1: in one spiritual practice and I like the idea of starting with nobody knows what's going on like it, nobody knows it, what the hell kind of is going really on it kind of really is like. true right like how much do we really know and the more you learn the more you realize how little we actually know about all of this stuff
0: absolutely absolutely you know and so listen, so if you're asking me about spirituality, one thing that is important, that has become important to me in recent years is living in hope that, that, that there is a purpose to existence and thinking of the, thing, the good I do as contributing in some tiny way to some greater purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't know whether there is ultimately a purpose. I think you know there are these suggestive, suggestive reasons to take the idea seriously, But even if there is kind of cosmic purpose, maybe the purpose is done already or maybe it's not a great purpose or, but I think it's, I think it's reasonable to live in hope that there is some greater purpose that's still unfolding. And I find that idea motivates me and it keeps my ego in check, Mm -hmm. you know, stops me thinking about my own narrow self-interests and it gives me a deep sense of meaning and purpose and... If it turns out I was completely wrong and it's all bullshit, you know, I still think I've gained much and lost nothing from living in hope of of a greater purpose to things. So so that's part of what I want to advocate in this new book of that, that possible way of living in that kind of hope and that there is grounds to take to take to take that possibility seriously, even though nobody knows what the hell's going on right. ultimately.
1: Right. I mean, I do like that idea you know to presume the existence or the possibility of panpsychism is to embrace a qualitatively different but perhaps more expansive sense of of what reality is that yeah. makes you feel like there is i don't know if an intelligence or a purpose is the right word but at least at a base level at a minimum a connectivity amongst mm-hmm. you know our fellow organisms that like I don't know, just gives me a uh what's the right word, not necessarily purpose, but collectivism, I suppose,
0: yeah, 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 I think there's I think there is a need for something like that, I mean, there are so many powerful forces in the modern world, you know, consumerism and global capitalism and national sentiments and I think there does need to use be something right to, to counterbalance that <laughs> and some, something we can, we, we can build on for a more hopeful picture of things. I think the idea that we can all just be rational and enlightened and, you know, we can all just, just through plain rational thinking, we can all learn to be nice and respectful. I think maybe that's not an inspiring enough vision to, to motivate people. Um, to counter these more more negative influences in life. I mean, things are, things are pretty messed up in a lot of ways at the moment. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think we need to maybe think of a worldview. I think in the absence of a worldview that gives, in which people can understand the meaning and significance of their lives, I think people turn to other ways of making sense of the meaning of their lives. You know, sort of nationalism or consumerism and so on. And mm-hmm. so I think there is this need to, which, is, which has always been part of what philosophy is all about, building a worldview, a way of seeing the world that makes sense of the meaning and significance of your life. So mm. I think that is essential part of the human condition.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and I think just to kind of you know, end this or you know, kind of land this conversation, I mean, that seems like a beautiful uh, takeaway from your work and, and, and from the book, but if there's anything else that you want people to really kind of understand about how philosophy can operate in, as a positive animating force in our lives, like whether it's panpsychism or otherwise, we sort of think of, of philosophy as an academic pursuit, but, mm. but honestly, the, it's, the, they're operating systems for living, right? They're meant to be practiced.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in many ways, the, the religion of our times is Scientism, You know, the idea that the only things you're allowed to believe in are those that can be demonstrated on the basis of observation experiments. Now, if you zealously clung to that, as we've discussed, you wouldn't believe in your own conscious mind, because that's not something that can can be known about in that way. You wouldn't believe in value. You wouldn't believe in the kind of truths mathematicians come up with, which don't seem to concern the the physical world of space and time. So I think, I mean, my my conception of philosophy, the task of philosophy is synthesis. It's a matter of taking all the things we know to be true in different ways. Of course, scientific truths, some experiments, but also the reality of our own consciousness, the reality perhaps of value and the kind of mathematical truths that we know about through mathematical intuition, taking all these things we know and bringing them together, synthesizing them into a, a worldview. That's, that, that's the, the ancient mm. noble task of philosophy that I think we've lost sight of and we need to come back to. And hopefully out of that act of synthesis will emerge a picture of reality that in which we can find a place in which we can live live our meaning out in a way that's rationally acceptable, scientifically plausible, but also good for our mental and spiritual health. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming to talk to me today. Thanks that's a lot. Of it. I'm Is feeling Is there anything the jet we didn't lag.
1: cover? Did we, what else did we, what did we miss? <laughs> I think we've done it all, haven't we? <laughs> I think we covered a lot of stuff. Free will, we didn't do free will. Um, free yeah. will's a whole other, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's two hours in the other direction. We could do that next time. Let's let's say come let's back when the new book comes. What is the new book gonna be
0: called again? It's got the very uh, humble title, The Purpose of Existence <laughs> 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 Between God and Atheism. Yes. So, yes. so very I'm supposed humble. to, I'm very supposed to finish that at the end of this month. I don't know whether that's oh, gonna that's happen. Oh, that's coming up but, soon. Um,
1: very good. But uh, sometime next year is the yeah. plan. Well, in the meantime, everybody go check out Galileo's error. It's uh, it's it's really, it, it really has provoked me and made me think, Deeply about things that are counterintuitive and has given me kind of an expansive, you know, perspective on not just consciousness, but the, you know, this sort of how to think about life. You know, and I think that does, as an operating system, trickle down into how we make decisions and you know how we prioritize, how we invest our time. So, thank you for that. And I think the work you're doing is super fascinating and. You're uh, always welcome to come back to continue the conversation.
0: Oh, brilliant. Thanks a lot, Rich. Thank I'm glad you. we finally managed to have this conversation. Yeah. Years it's in the really making. Loved. It's been really glad fun.
1: to have made it happen. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Got- I mean, we didn't. We didn't. I mean, we didn't solve all the world's problems, but didn't maybe we? next time we can yeah. do that. A few loose
0: ends to tie up. All right. Great. <laughs> Thank slow. you. Cheers.
1: Peace. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Salise, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.